We're going to read from the book of James today. It's a challenging passage. Um, You'll see why here in in just a moment. Um, In the Pew Bibles in front of you, it's on page 1013. It's always good to open those up, practice, especially if we're newer to the scriptures, to figure out where things are. We give those page numbers. But to open that up um, is just something that we should be doing daily in our lives. So, James, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Here we go. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Heavenly Father, there is grace today in this warning in your scripture. There is more grace today than the troubles we faced this past week, than the anxieties about the week, the months, the years ahead. And so I want to thank you for the opportunity to be here with your people today in your presence to read your word. Lord, we ask that you would teach us, that you would train us today, that you would soften our hearts, that you would sharpen our minds, that you would um, give us clarity and charity, clarity of thought, to think well, uh, charity, love in our hearts, to love each other well, to love you well. And uh, Father, I pray that you would give us the grace um, to hear a hard message, especially since it's hard. May we see the beauty of your grace in it today. And we ask Ultimately, that we would delight more in you, that that Christ would be shaped in us from degree to degree, from glory to glory. May that be the case, Lord. We love you. Uh, Thank you for this time. Thank you for your your precious word. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I imagine that you heard it said that love wins. And it's true. God is love, and he is the king that overcomes evil with good. Unconquerable, invincible, the life giver, the redeemer, the grave overcomer, the death beater. Love wins. But you may not have heard the less popular saying, love warns. This doesn't have the same fun ring to it, does it? In fact, you may not only have not heard the mantra, love warns, but you have heard the very opposite coming at you a thousand different ways from a thousand different angles throughout your weeks. Some variation of, love doesn't disagree, or love always affirms. Let others express themselves, do what they do, that's their thing, let them be, let them be what they want to be, to disagree is to be unloving, it's simply to be intolerant, to warn them of their ways is tantamount to hate speech. To warn someone in our day and age is to invite responses that sound a little bit like, 
who do you think you are? You're a hypocrite. You're not my judge. It's my life. You think you're better than me? Says who? And there's a whole list of them. See, to warn someone means that you have seen something dangerous, some disastrous outcome, but that means that you have seen uh, some truth that they haven't. And then that also means that there is a big truth out there that doesn't affirm or gel with their direction, and it's frankly offensive. And it's a power play because what we've seen grow in our culture over decades is, is this ultimate virtue of, of feeling something, desiring something, expressing that something, then wanting that thing that's expressed validated so then we can say this is our identity. And if you don't validate what somebody else has expressed because they've felt it, then you are cutting into their very identity. Sociologically, this is called expressive individualism and it's really in the air we breathe it's it's throughout netflix it's it's diffused throughout hulu the articles we read the things we see the things we hear the things we say it's just there if you love someone you're not going to try to change them you're just going to let them be but god according to the scriptures is love god is love and according to the scriptures god warns over and over and over again from genesis on to revelation so love warns and this is what james does in this passage james warns see our secular culture has fostered an atmosphere in which disagreement equals bigotry have you ever run into that you disagree with someone and you're a hater to disagree with me means you disrespect me it's just a lie it's a flat out lie See, it's the opposite that's true. To truly respect someone, you need to be able to disagree with them. To see them as a real moral being with agency for right or for wrong. To truly respect someone, you need to be able to disagree with them, to see them as a real moral being with agency for right and for wrong. And at large, we've lost this. Public discourse is damaged because of it. Our ability to grow has been muted and blunted because of it. If we can't disagree with someone and warn them while at the same time loving them, there's no real strength of relationship there at all. There's no seeing the other person's humanity. A human being has volition, uh, has will, has, has desires, has affections, has emotions and thoughts. They're agents. We're agents. We are beings made in the image of God. So there's a moral agency to us. We do wonderful things and stupid, wicked things. Right? We, we, we think glorious thoughts. We think broken thoughts. You can't disagree with a rock, right? I mean, you can, but it just shows something about you, not the rock, right? You can't disagree with a rock. It has no agency. It just is. It isn't right. It isn't wrong. It just is. It's fact. But you can disagree with the guy who threw a rock through your window. Because he thinks he's right because he has a different skin color than you. You can disagree. You can simultaneously love him and disagree 
knowing, saying, articulating it was wrong, it was racist, it was immoral. You can love someone and disagree with them. Love warns. Prime example, Jesus. I mean, read the scriptures over and over and over again. He's disagreeing with everybody, with people all over the place. He disagrees with them about money. He disagrees with them about sex. He disagrees with them about the afterlife, about the scriptures, about who he is, about who they are, about uh, the, their politics. He disagrees with them all over the map. But he always loved them. He always respected their humanity, and therefore he challenged them. He called them out. He didn't treat them like rocks. He treated them like image bearers who had a moral trajectory. Now, as we get into this, um, first, that's a foundation for where we're going to go. But I I also want to say something. Can I say to you that I'm a bit nervous about preaching today's message? Is it okay to tell you, like... I've been sweating this. Why? Well, I'm supposed to just stand up here, right? And, and tell it like it is. The good, the bad, the ugly. I mean, I'm supposed to say things like they are. But it turns out, like, I'm in this with you all. And I love you. And I like you. <laughs> and it's highly likely that when I preach difficult topics, some of you might not like me as much. And I don't like the thought that you won't like me. Turns out I like to be liked. Sometimes way too much. But I love you. And so I will preach the tough stuff. And today is some of the tough stuff. Doesn't mean it's not good. It's just tough. So two things that have made me sweat prepping for this. The first, the timing. Are you kidding me? We launched a capital commitment campaign last week. You heard the announcement Noah gave earlier. This passage has been set for months. We schedule it out. We're going to go through the book of James verse by verse. And then when I saw how it all plotted out with some of the building stuff, and I look at uh, Celebration Sunday and James chapter 5, I was like, oh, great. Fantastic. Because you heard the verse, right? You know, and I'm thinking, are they going to think that I... You know, I I maneuvered this to, like, push in to get more finances. It's not the case. This has been the text for a long time. Second, here you go. I'm going to be blunt. We're an incredibly affluent congregation. It's fact. I don't know the books. Only the financial office does. It's an incredibly limited number of people. I don't know the books. I don't want to know the books. But I'm not blind. Guys, we live in the Tri-Valley. It is an incredibly affluent area compared to not only the United States, well, not only the world, but to the United States and other areas of California. But the praise here is that God is using this church to scatter blessing and resources globally. Our, global's mission, it, it, our global mission has monies going out all over doing incredible things. Our local mission has resources going out to do all sorts of wonderful things here. The Benevolence Fund just blows my mind. People being helped left, right, and center all over the place. So I'm thankful for that. But this text is going to cut closer to the quick than some other texts. So yeah, I'm a bit nervous. It's just an honest admission from another apprentice. 
of Jesus. But that said, I'm in full conviction that this is the word of God, and James is, is about to spit some wisdom that we need to hear. So are we in this together? Thank you. <laughs> Can love and warning go together? Yes, absolutely. James, chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. James comes in hot, right? Check out that tone. Come now, you rich. Weep, howl, miseries. Like, it's not exactly a tender, nuanced sentence. But here's the thing. James sees a serious train wreck coming. Now, I think we all know, I think James knows that there are times where a warning needs to be soft and drawn out and nuanced. There's those times where I need to come alongside my son and say, hey buddy, let's sit, let's talk. Those words, those tones that you're using with your sister do not honor her and do not respect her. Or, sweetheart, let's go back to the, the bench in the backyard. Let's talk. Um, you are having a hard time sharing with your sister. And it's really affecting her. Let's talk about this, right? We all know there's those times. But there are other times when a warning needs to be sharp and sudden. No! Stop! Because it's severe. The danger is imminent. And I've used both of my kids. Both have been used with me as well. Livy about to put a flathead screwdriver into the electrical outlet. Stop! She cries, drops it, right? Silas whirling a hammer around, oblivious that his sister is there and it's millimeters from her face. Put it down! Come here, let's talk. At this point, somebody after last service said, well, it seems like somebody should be putting away their tools. It's like, <laughs> not the point, but thank you. Got it. I was working on projects. But if you were to tell me that it was unloving to yell those warnings, then I would tell you, you might not be thinking clearly about what is loving and what is not. You might have misunderstood. You might have misseen or misheard. James sees an out-of-control, whirling hammer. He sees a screwdriver headed towards a live electrical outlet. Stop, stop, stop. He's arrested the attention of the readers now, and he will lay out their big problem with four elements. They are misusing and abusing their wealth. Big problem. Four ways they're doing it. Hoarding, defrauding, indulging, and condemning. They're misusing their funds through hoarding, defrauding, indulging, and condemning. So let's work through these, verse by verse. Hoarding. James calls out the three main categories of wealth. This is an agricultural society. The wealthy are those who have land, who are producing the crops on which you know, people live, Right? The harvest are the sustenance of the people. So the idea here with this word riches is, is like the crops, is, is the food that keeps society going. The second word he uses here is garments or clothes. Another uh, way that wealth is trafficked in and seen and used. 
Then he moves from the wardrobe to, to coin, to, to currency. Right? So he, he kind of uses these words to say, like, wealth in total by some of you is being misused and abused. Each of these categories of wealth is being stored, it's being hoarded, it's being used, it's being dammed up, and take the double meaning of that. Seeds are to plant, food is to eat, clothes are to wear and to warm and protect, money is to be used for the flourishing of the total well-being of a community. But James says this wealth is being wasted, he says it's rotting. The food is rotting. The clothes are moth-eaten in storage. The money is rusting. It's corroding. So wealth is squandered, misused. It's fruitless. It's unproductive. Now, here's the key thing that we need to understand without pulling any potency from this. James is not condemning wealth. He's condemning the misuse of wealth. He's not just after a class or category of people based on some resource stratification. He's after the posture of a bent heart that doesn't take blessing and transfer into blessings for other people. See, what we do with the resources God has given us matter. And the fact is, whatever resources we have, whatever finances, whatever funds, whatever material things we have, Why do we have those? Because God has ultimately given those to us. It doesn't matter how hard we work. Ultimately, he gave us the energies, the efforts, the place in life, the blessings to work for those things. Bottom line, ultimately, we have what we have because he has graciously given it to us and seen it in his wisdom fit to give to us. And so we are held accountable how we use the resources that he gives us. Now, I know this is an incredibly unpopular and grumble-inducing statement. Um, It's common to think our wealth is ours, but it's not. It's God's, and we are given the intolerable compliment of stewarding it well. And we will be held accountable for how we use the financial resources God has given us. And this isn't to guilt us into giving in any way, shape, or form, but to help us to joyfully and generously and wisely live so that we might be like our good and generous God. So the first misuse here that that is judged is hoarding. The irrational gathering of stuff that shows ultimately we don't believe in God to supply our needs. It's just the gathering and storing up of stuff. Now, you might have a question rise in your mind that I had this week as I was preparing, going hoarding, okay, gathering up the stuff. What about, what about my 401k? What about my 403b, my Roth, safety deposit boxes, whatever? What about saving? What's the difference between hoarding and saving? Well, there's a vast difference between hoarding and saving. To save is a way to wisely steward resources for future benevolent use. To save is to wisely steward resources for future benevolent use. That's incredibly different than hoarding, which is collecting large amounts of something for yourself. Very different ends. 
Is it good to save and provide for your family? To pay school bills? To, to bless a child with a wedding in the future? To have resources when you can no longer physically active, actively work the way you used to? Or, or to have that rainy day fund, right? To save up for emergencies? Yes. Those things are wise. We can go through Proverbs and pull verses and talk about this stuff. But is it okay to be like Scrooge, holding every bit of cold, every bit of gold to your chest, gathering, collecting, shattering relationships along the way? No, it's not. All the stuff that we save up that is not used to bless others rots, is wasted. I want to show you an image that I. I think helps us, um, at least it helps me, to envision hoarding. What does hoarding look like? Well, here is hoarding to me. Now, who is it? Smog. Good. All right. It, it's smog, that murderous dragon from the Hobbit there in the belly of the Lonely Mountain. He sits on his hoard of gold. He's collected it for himself, hoarding it for no reason but his own greed, to bury himself in it, to swim in it, devouring others, to get it and to maintain it. This is rotting treasure. It's rotting until it is released to bless the peoples of the land, until that lonely mountain is opened up and it goes out to feed and care for other people. It's October 31st, so it's a good day to show a dragon in my opinion. Um, and here's my really brief five-second theology on Halloween. Smog was vanquished, the serpent was crushed. It's good news. I hope um, that helps you on Halloween here. So yesterday when I was uh, preparing this, um, I said, Silas, come here. I said, what's this a picture of? And he's like, oh, that's smog. He's like, yes. We're raising him right mostly. We'll see. Um, but then I said, Silas, what does it mean to hoard? What is, what is hoarding? And he goes, um, uh, um, hoarding is keeping something and not sharing it. And then he just runs off. And I was like, yeah. So there's, there's some third grade wisdom right there. We'll, we'll stick with that. Keeping something and not sharing it. Now, let's move from Tolkien's fire-breathing dragon to James and fiery judgment. Verse 3b, he says, And their corrosion, the richest corrosion, will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in these last days. You have laid up treasure for yourself in these last days. What does this mean? Why, did, why does he say last days? Because James knows that the Messiah has come. The long-promised Messiah has come. Jesus has come to earth. He has done his work. He has lived perfectly, died, rose from the dead, breathed his spirit into his people. The kingdom has come and is advancing throughout the world, changing hearts, reprioritizing how we see heaven and earth and everything in the middle of it. And he's saying, the Christ has come. You're new people. That, that changes everything. Everything is now reprioritized. We should live like he lived. The last days are upon us because he has come and the church is now growing and expanding in the darkness of this world. To hoard for yourself shows your heart is not like his. And it needs to be reformed. 
And then he just keeps shooting straight here. I mean, he has the, the, the gall to bring hell into it. He talks about the fire that, that eats the flesh. He's referring to Gehenna. He's referring to hell. Saying, there's judgment. There's judgment for those that love themselves over other people. And their amassed misuse of funds as evidence of their own guilt. In other words, it's, it's this great twist. Our, our accumulated wealth, rather than protecting us and saving us, actually buries us and condemns us. It falls back on us and crushes us rather than releases us. James is not done. He keeps going. Verse 4. You guys, are we here? Are you with me still? All right. Verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So now he goes after the unloving heart in relationship to injustice. Because again, this is an agricultural society he's speaking to. He's talking about day laborers, field workers, harvesters. Those who won't eat that day unless they work and get paid a day's wage. They literally worked hand to mouth. And the rich have committed fraud. They said they would pay them, and they don't. Or they said they would pay them something, and they pay them something else. They cheat them. And then they're using their power and their wealth to hide behind it. Because what are these day laborers going to do? Foment a riot that night? Sure, great, but they're still not going to get the food to feed their kids at home. So, let me put this another way. Um, I'll use words way more powerful than mine could ever be. This is Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 14 and 15. These are words through Moses from the Lord to the people who've been redeemed from slavery and they're heading out into freedom, into the promised land. And he says this, You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy. Whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he's poor and he counts on it. Lest he cry against you to the Lord, and you be guilty of sin. I truly believe that this is the verse that James has rolling through his mind as he's writing this. A lot of scholars do. Like, if you look at the words, right? Lest he cry against you to the Lord, and you be guilty of sin. Look again at verse 4 of James. James 5, verse 4. And, um... Crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. This is a command. He, he pulled these people out of slavery. They knew what it was like to be crushed under burdens, to be defrauded and cheated and oppressed. And they're going to head into another land where there were, are other people who treat people this way. And he says, be different. Treat them with love and respect. James is not making up social justice rules. He's not leaning into party lines. He's reading his Bible and he's taking it seriously. Verse 5. The, the degree goes even higher now. He keeps moving on up. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. 
if this, weren't, if this verse weren't so uh, troubling, it would be funny. He says that, that people are spending their days fattening themselves up for Thanksgiving. Like a turkey, right? Like a big bully hog that's first to the trough and is pushing everyone out of the way. They're eating it up with each selfish bite. That pig is making himself bacon, right? The person's indulging is their undoing. They're killing themselves. They're burying themselves. And and by the way, indulgence is not the antithesis of not enough. Indulgence is the antithesis. It's the opposite of contentment. A discontent and ungrateful soul devours all they can. It says Paul later says in the New Testament, um, he says their God is their, their, their guts or their bellies. And he's not just talking about food. He's talking about the appetites, the desires that drive us. This means food, sex, alcohol, drugs, attention, anything that you feed on. Often to quiet your pain. Indulgence is a bedfellow with pain and trauma. Do we realize this? One of the reasons why we indulge is to shut down the voice of the pain that is within us. We distract. We need mounds of pleasure to overcome ounces of pain that we're dealing with. But it only amplifies it. It numbs the voice of pain. It keeps us from dealing with the real issue and we're burying ourselves in some other problem. Now, something we can do if indulgence is our thing, um, I love the simple but profound wisdom from Robert Murray McShane, a pastor from, from ages past. Um, he said that we need to cultivate contentment. One of the ways that we can do that is for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. For every desire that we have that we are about to indulge in, turn your mind tenfold to the beauties and the glories of Christ and let that change the shape of how you think. Let it alter your affections over time. And maybe one of the things that we can practically do is practice fasting in smaller degrees. Put food away for half a day or for a couple days. Put social media or other things away. And one of the things that we do, uh, or one of the things that happens when we do that, is that we realize we don't need as much as we think. Jesus taught us to pray for daily bread, that the Lord feeds the birds. He dresses the lilies. He cares for his children. Paul says if we have food and shelter, we should be content because the Lord has provided what we need. Okay, last verse. Last verse. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And what's this about? Guys, here James speaks to the fact that unjust use of wealth and wages contributes to broken systems that ultimately somewhere down the line take the lives of other people how i don't know i don't i can't read his mind i don't know which broken pathways he's he's thinking about but i can give you some examples just at a super high level think of oh i don't know any any corrupt country across this whole world with corrupt leadership, a, a dictator with a sociopath at the helm? I mean, just look across the globe and see how many broken systems of government there are because people are holding their wealth. They're rigged by power. And so the needed infrastructures to care for the people aren't there. There's, there's no medical care. The, the right things can't get to the right people. 
The, the water infrastructure isn't there so people can drink clean water. The, the proper law enforcement isn't there to care for the people. And so injustices happen daily. Why? Because people are loading their pockets and holding their power. This is the opposite of Christ. In short, when we misuse our wealth, we act unjustly. We side with the Pharaohs, the Caesars, and the Herods. We, not, we might not see the, the consequences, but they roll down the line. Instead of justice and mercy rolling down like a river, injustice does, and it crushes people. And siding against the righteous who resisted in nonviolence and love. That's, that's Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate righteous one who did not resist. And what James is saying is, are, you, are we siding ultimately with the Caesars, the Pharaohs, and the Herods, or with the way of the cross? Now that's the bad news. That's the bad news we made it through. Here's our crucial pivot. This text is awesome. It functions like a photographic negative. Do you know what I mean when I say that? A photographic negative, you take that photographic negative, you shine the light through it, and you, you make it become a positive, and now you get to see the picture that should be there. Everything as it ought to be. It comes to technicolor life. So quick exercise. I only have a few more moments. Quick exercise. Look at these four words, and maybe to the person to the left or right, or maybe write it down. Uh, what is the opposite of each one of these words? What is the inverse, the antithesis of each one of these? Just think about that for a moment. What is the opposite picture that develops from these negatives? I, I imagine we could give some really, really good answers. I'd like to put forward four. Here's the four that I want to put forward. The opposite of hoarding is not just giving indiscriminately. It's stewarding. Very different. The opposite of defrauding is not just giving somebody their wages. It's loving them. It's seeing them as an image bearer of God and finding ways to care for them and do what is right. The opposite of indulging is self-denying. Healthy limits that don't just cave in to every impulse we have because we know that ultimately destroys us. And the opposite of condemning is blessing. Seeking the good of others rather than their ruin. So what do we see here? If we step back, big picture, what do we see here? We see the way of the cross in antithesis to the way of the snake. That's what we see. We see a life that is other-oriented versus a life that is self-centered. And think about it. Go back to Genesis 3 really briefly with me. This is the way of the snake. He comes and he tells them, you get what's, what's your due. Grab, take, get it. He's holding out on you. You be like a God. Take it all. Hoard in a cosmic kind of way. He defrauds them. He lies to them. And he leads them into condemnation. They feel shame. They hide. 
Christ comes into the garden, into this world, into Gethsemane, into the, onto the cross, and does the exact opposite. He stewards his life perfectly, giving himself away in just the right time and just the, the right ways according to God's promise. He lives lovingly, pouring himself out for others. He denies himself, sets limits, doesn't grab, doesn't take. He blesses the world that curse him. This is the way of the cross. This is the way of Jesus versus the way of the snake. Do you wonder what the line is between hoarding and stewarding? I do. Do you wonder if you are defrauding someone? Do you wonder when enjoying life becomes indulgence? Yes. How do you know if you are condemning or blessing? I don't know how to answer that in big form aside from what I just did. So I can tell you that if you seek the Lord's guidance, you think through these things in prayer, in community, and ask questions like, am I stewarding this well? Friend, am I stewarding this well? Is this a loving use of my wealth? Help me out here. Is there an aspect of self-denial? Is there limitations on myself? Or, or am I treating myself like a God? Will this use of my funds bless someone else? Big picture is the posture of your heart self-centered or other-oriented. In closing, I, I want to say that this passage gives me the right to judge. Gives me the right to judge myself in accordance with God's good word. As we walk out of here today, we need to flip the polarity switch on our judgment and judge ourselves and hear this warning as God's love to us and not walk out of here in condemnation if we have sinned in these categories which we have Zacchaeus remember Zacchaeus man this guy indulged this guy defrauded this guy was is a financial disaster the way of the snake it was like the tattoo on his arm it was just that's what he did and it comes to Jesus and Jesus says Dude, today I'm eating in your house. Salvation has come to you. And the grace changes him. And the polarity switch flips. And now he's giving out times 10 of what he took. Don't leave here condemned if you felt the judgment of each one of these things or any of them. Grace chases you and changes you and transforms you. And you are the beloved of Christ. The Father loves you. I want to sum it all up with this. Jesus is the embodiment of joyful generosity. He is the embodiment of joyful generosity. God graciously gives good gifts that we might do likewise. We are blessed to be a blessing. Jesus was that great gift. God's wealth given to an undeserving people. And he showed up to show us what gratefulness and gratitude and, and generosity looked like. He slayed the dragon, that self-sick serpent. He broke the way of the snake. And he has lavished his goodness on us that we might do likewise. He's good. Amen? Heavenly Father, you are good to us. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for the grace of your scriptures that um, love us and challenge us. Acknowledge our humanity. Acknowledge your your divinity and show us our need and show us your grace. 
And so, Lord, we thank you that we get to come to this table of grace now. And I pray just liberation and freedom for souls that have been bound up in green greed and not ever seeing it. Help us to walk in the freedom of joyful generosity.